Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello. It's the first day of spring today recording this. Is it the first day of spring recording this? It is. It's the equinox. Of course it is. No, it's not. Now, it's the 20th. No, the 21st is the equinox. No, it's- no, today is the spring equinox. Oh, all right. Well, I'll take your word. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll take your word for it's it. The 22nd is in September. That's the autumnal one. But I just want to say, you know, I just thought there's got to be a band or an album called Equinox, right? Of course there is, isn't there? Hang on, there is, isn't there? But there, there's, 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 definitely... there's hundreds of albums called Equinox. Well, isn't it? I bet there's a million jazz fusion <laughs> instrumental yeah, yeah, albums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. But anyway, Styx had an album out in the 70s called Equinox, and it, 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 it had a Roger Dean cover. Did you ever get Styx? I never. Uh, do you know what? I was about to say, I bet you were not checking for Styx in the 70s over here. Never. No, no. never. They never. occasionally showed up in the music papers, and it was just like, ah. Oh. You know. But I have to say, have you seen them now? No, they, they all seem to have the same face surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, they clearly won't be coming on anytime soon. Um, I'm going to get a shameless plug in, Gary, because yeah. you and I, the Rock on Tours, are the proud sponsors of the Rooker Prize. Uh, ah, yes. And I went to meet all the good people. This is a brilliant thing. This is Lewis FC. This is my new local football club who are amazing, who just had a valiant battle, the women, against uh, Manchester United and did very well, but didn't make it through to the FA Cup semi-finals. But this team is amazing. It's the only team on earth where the women and the men get paid the same. And they're involved in all sorts of amazing community stuff, one of which, they're called the Rooks, and so one is they've started this prize called the Rooker Prize, uh, which is for, for writers, and all you have to do is write the first 250 words of a novel. And the Rooker Prize is sponsored by rock on tours. Do they wear it on their t-shirt? Uh, on their jersey, cost, I should say. I think that costs a bit more. Right. Can, can I just say, <laughs> that you only have to write 250 words of a novel. I've done that about 10 times. Who hasn't? <laughs> yeah, who hasn't? I know, they're going to be inundated. Someone told me I, I, everyone has a novel in them somewhere, don't they? I mean, what, what, what would your novel be? 
But I'm, I've tried. Well, the best one ever is Peter Cook's line, wasn't it? When uh, he met someone he f- thought a bit dreary at a party, and he said, "Oh, so what are you up to then?" And he said, "Oh, actually, I'm writing a novel." He went really? Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's like being in Soho House, isn't it? And everyone tells you they're writing a script. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, Harvey Goldsmith. Okay, now this man, Gary. Now I don't know because you're because you're so very very much older than me. It might be different for you, but I, <laughs> but I don't think it is. From I the, use from the, the same face surgeon as sticks, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> from the second I got into music, the second this man was the gold standard of gigs. He was the Harlem Globetrotter, wasn't it? If it said Harvey, Go- it was. It only said Harvey Goldsmith. If it was the Who, if it was the Stones, if it was Led Zeppelin, yeah, it was the era. Yeah. He was. He's always been just a cut above. The back of the enemy, isn't it? That's what you were looking for. Harvey Goldsmith presents. Presents, yeah. And he, and he invented that thing of the one-dayer, the one-day show. Oh, is that, was that a Crystal Palace? Or? Yeah. Yeah, the Pink Floyd bomb was him, I believe. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and you, of course, you Save this. This is well. gold. Save this. You've worked with him as well, with Gilmore as well. With Gilmore, or with Floyd. Uh, very, and, well, we've got a funny thing. I was recently a judge with him uh, on the panel of a Hungarian classical prodigy talent show on right, tv right right well you know i i and also i obviously i did live aid with him um well exactly i, I just want to do my oh, so, so did he not promote Sp- well spandau no everything very in-house yeah we promoted ourselves yeah. yeah but um i just want to do a quick rundown my bill friendle moment and just say these are some of the bands that he's promoted yes genesis led zeppelin pink floyd queen eagles elton john u2 madonna stones the who springsteen oasis rod I mean, he managed Jeff Beck as well. That's right, yeah. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. But it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Experience, oh, yeah, to, to, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! Morning. Hey! Harvey. Harvey. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I haven't seen you since Budapest. No, indeed. Well, you've been busy on the road and I've been running around... You know, different places. So what are you two doing in Budapest? We're both involved in a very interesting program called Virtuosos, which is um, helping find the next generation of great young musicians. And we're both judges and they film it in Budapest. And it's, yeah, and it was quite terrifying because it's with proper grown-ups. It's like the conductor from the Met, Pavarotti's old pianist and opera singers. And then there's me and Harvey, the sort of English meat and two veg at the end. But at least you got the advantage. (laughs) You've got the advantage, Harvey, being able, you'd literally say, I'd put you on at the Albert Hall tomorrow. And you can! (laughs) Do you have have paddles? (laughs) No no paddles. I actually went over the other week. Harvey, that, that I got they, they had a, a, a sort of a winner's concert with Placido Domingo singing. In an, you'd, you'd, have, you'd have loved it. It was an arena. What about the old sorry, arena? Isn't, isn't there a guy that's just like him called Placebo Domingo? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't work, though. I couldn't go. 
because I've only, I've used nearly all my days up. That's right, I heard that. I've only got two days left. Hang on, it's well, only March. Right. How did you do that? How did you Welcome do that? Welcome to Brexit. Well, just no, but it's only March. You got how many? You got ninety, isn't it? Or was well, it you, you've got to work back one hundred and eighty days, and how many? Oh, if you've done God. nearly ninety in the hundred and eighty, you've got to wait until you've worked it through. So it's a bloody nuisance. I've got to wait till April before I can go back to Europe. Oh my God! Listen, I, I think you just just explain because I don't know whether I fully understood it as a kid. I sort of understand it now because I'm in the business. But just to explain to people what a promoter does. Um, the very expensive wet nappy service. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not helping. <laughs> um, the promoter basically works with the manager, the artist or the agent, depending on his relationships, and takes care of the live side of an artist's career and takes all the risks. So the artist decides he wants to go on the road or it depends on with me it's a bit different because i get involved with the artists directly and figure out what they want to do rather than dealing with it fourth hand from an agent all he wants is the money um the agent's responsibility is to book the dates with no responsibility the artist the promoter's uh job is to make the dates work uh with all responsibility so it's so the buck stops with the promoter really the, at the sort of level you work at, Harvey, so I, I've and with the greatest respect to sort of Neil Warnock and John Giddings people, but they're agents. Is, what? What? No, but why is there an agent? That do you know what I mean? It's like you're going why? to play Wembley, and you know, yeah. It's a very good question. <laughs> why? <laughs> I've opened a can of worms. Strangely I? enough, I have spent most of my life not working with agents, and they all have big photos of me, and they stick throw darts at it because I've always. <laughs> work with either the artist and the manager or the manager and I call myself a coordinator because I take care of everything so I'll deal with anything where you know I worked with Elton John for 30 or two three years and I'd go see the record company I'd work out when he should go on the road we'd work out the promotional campaign I'd work out all the venues he wanted to play and he would tell me I want to play this or I don't want to play that and um, he put the band together. I can organise the rehearsals. And with many artists, I also organise their production. Because like with Bowie, with Bowie, you, there was none of that, was there? there wasn't it, it was just basically him to you. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. seeing what Guy's saying, you know, the, the artist thinks, I'd like to go on the road, goes to the manager... Who, who, who then takes a percentage and phones the agent, who then takes a percentage, who phones the promoter. And then the who promoter then gets stuck. <laughs> right, right, OK. But, but I, I understand. The promoters don't get the credit that's due, really. Most, I have to say, I'm probably unique in this world because most promoters are part of a circuit. So if you work in... You know, in the Czech Republic, you've got Prague. And if you work in France, you've got Paris and all the other cities. But that's your limit. So you're part of a chain where the agent gets much more involved and right. puts, he'll piece together the tour yeah. with all the different promoters and you do your section. Most of the acts I work with, I work with them from the get-go. It's just a different relationship. And I don't know why, but... It's always been that way with me. And um, 
I don't I don't have a problem with dealing with the agents, but as long as they don't get in the way. <laughs> so but you always had a thing, Harvey, where because Gar and I were saying that like ever since we've been going to gigs, you were the gold stamp, right? You always have if it says Harvey Gold and in fact it only says Harvey Goldsmith above it if it's someone massive that you really want to see. And um and I'd say so you have you're the only promoter who's sort of famous in the way that some of the fame like uh, like Andrew Lou Goldham or Kit Lambert say yeah. are you have that I mean you know you're famous for your little soirees on stage I remember the first time I ever worked with you which I, I mean I was a tiny cog in this thing when I was playing for Ice House and we opened for David Bowie at Milton Keynes yeah and there was a thing where we go on and then everyone would start to get a bit excited because they'd be worried about it. And then they'd start to move forward a bit. And then between us and the next band, you would come on and tell her, right, everyone just move back. If everyone could just move back. To the point where, as we were doing by the second day, I'd actually altered all the call sheets so that it said sort of 4 p.m. Ice House, uh, 5.15 Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest with you, most promoters hide. And I'm not saying that disparagingly, but they do. They hide. They sit in their office. They do their box office settlement. They never go out front. They don't listen to anything. And they take the money and off they go. I have a different view in life in that I'm concerned what happens when ticket buyers leave their homes. Because I can always tell with a show whether it's going to be good, bad or indifferent. If they've had a problem getting in, their nanny didn't turn up, they got stuck in a traffic jam, the bus was late, the train got stuck, whatever. They get to the venue and the security guards are a bloody nightmare and ticket taking is a nightmare. By the time they get in there to their seat, it takes three numbers before the audience even starts to calm down and mm -hmm. get into the music. So I can always tell that. And I've always been concerned about what the public see and what they do. So... I'm quite renowned for beating up sound engineers, front of house sounding engineers, because they're all deaf. Where it's so loud, you could, you just can't hear it. I mean, today things are a bit, you know, obviously the technology's moved on. And similarly with safety, I've always been deeply concerned about the safety of the audience who can go a bit nuts and not realise it. You only need, as what happened in that dreadful Travis Scott accident, last year or year before last where something like 800 people were injured and 11 were dead because there was a panic down the front the layout of the of the of the site was completely wrong i mean totally wrong if you look at it they created a funnel and when people start to push back and they're dancing they're pushing forward they don't realize that somebody in the front's getting squashed and you only need one person to fall down, then they get trampled on, and then it's so that's why I did it. It's not for my is, benefit, it's to kind of make sure the audience is safe. Is the um, I mean, obviously, you put your name out there, front of house. There, there seems to be a lot of facelessness about promoters now, the live nation conglomerate, you know, that 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 well, it's a that, different, it's a different structure again with me. If there was a problem, I don't mind dealing with it. So I get, you know, I get uh, punters writing to me all the time, good, bad and indifferent. But if I don't hear from them that there's a problem in a particular venue where they've got bad security or the front of house doesn't work or whatever, how the hell do you know? So I'm, I'm, I've never shied away from 
my responsibility, if you like, to our audience who are keeping us all alive uh, to make sure they're okay because they're the ones that buy the tickets and they're the ones that, you know, they pay for everything. But you also have a duty of care to make sure that they have a smooth ride and they can enjoy the act. That's what they're there for. They don't need the other aggravation. Talking of which, sorry, I've never thought, I don't think we've ever talked about this, but there was, uh, there was a particular night that we were both at, yes. uh, at Earl's Court Earl's in Court. 1994. Correct. When Correct. I was the one who had to go and tell Rick to stop. <laughs> so this is, this is with Pink Floyd, right? It was with Pink Floyd, the opening night, yeah. It was really weird. I was, it was quite strange. We started the show. I then walked out to, to go to the box office, the front of house, to make sure everyone was in because there was a huge queue um, and it was quite slow. I just wanted to make sure that everyone had got in and if they hadn't had pushed them in again and get them moved forward and all the rest of it. And I got about 20 yards past the back stand and suddenly I heard this very strange noise and I looked round and I could hear there was a problem. I rushed back and I saw what had happened. The whole stand collapsed. It was an absolute miracle there were 1,400 people on that stand. The stand collapsed, and one guy broke his leg. That was it. Wow. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So I, I literally wow. rushed to the stage, grabbed yeah. a mic, walked on stage, and st- had to stop the show, and then oh, try and orderly get people out, because most of the audience had no idea what was going on. We I'm didn't have any idea what was going on. No, because I mean, it was an effect. <laughs> that's just that. That's what I'm saying. The problem is, it is because, you know, being Pink Floyd, we had this, there's this half hour pre-show tape and there isn't a sound on earth that hasn't been co-opted by Pink Floyd. Baby crying, phone ringing, helicopter, machine gun, anything. Yeah. Stand collapsing. And you just think, oh, mate, they've changed the tape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, pretty hairy, but it was a miracle. It was really was a miracle that, did did I, I guess someone lost their job over that? Did how do you follow the line of paperwork? Well, I I, I got to tell you something. I rushed back. I couldn't find the hall management. I go into the manager's office, and I found someone, and I made and I called the health and safety executive Saturday night. Called the health and safety executive, and the the person that answered, who was on weekend call, said. Uh, I told him what happened. He said, is anyone dead? I said, not as far as I could see. And he said, well, we'll deal with it next week. Put the phone down. At which point I went nuclear. And I got, and the problem was that it was the local authority had signed off the stand. They signed off the dynamics and the, because it was, it was Earl's Court's um, responsibility to put the seating in. And the building's inspector had been around in the afternoon, signed it off, everything's fine. I'm not I'm not a, an industrial designer. Yeah. And um, if he says it's fine, it's fine. But yeah. they wouldn't take any responsibility at all. They all of them passed the buck. Who got wow. sued? I got sued. Jesus. Even though my contract said otherwise, I got sued. I then in turn I mean it was ended up being the you know, the usual insurance company you know, situation where they took it over on my behalf. And to be honest with you, I felt that the people that should be responsible was the local authority and yeah. indeed the health and safety executive. That's who they that's who they work for. And they just said, oh, it's nothing to do with us. Do you know what I found amazing about that was that, because of course we were told to just, to just, you know, just leave. 
So I, I came home and I was home by 10 o'clock. And, I, and, and so I watched the news at 10 and we were the lead story ahead of the unionist ceasefire in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Now, I'm not a journalist, but frankly, I would have had it the other way around. Well, it was quite unusual at the time. And as yeah. I say, there were 1,400 people on that stage. It was a miracle that nobody was, got killed. And of course, the one, the Vox Pop they got, they got from some guy who was in there, of course goes, oh no, I, th I thought it was an effect. And then I saw all the blood everywhere. <laughs> it's like, no, you didn't. <laughs> Funny. And that guy, I mean, he came to every show that the, the Floyd, it was, it's really funny. <laughs> uh, Harvey, let's uh, let's talk about how you got into this business. And yes. I'm guessing that the reason you're, you know, Harvey Goldsmith promotes, you know, obviously now we've turned into these live nation uh, companies, but it's because it, this was for young people and it was at colleges and it was at local places. Yeah. I, I came in through the university route. Um, yes. I went to university very quickly. I went to university to study pharmacy. I went to do a particular. There was there was it was perfumes you were into, wasn't it, Harvey? <laughs> yes. Are you still? Are you still? Do you have a nose on you? Yes. So I was interested in the whole perfume cosmetics, the marketing thereof, and how it all works, and all the rest of it. I went to do this particular course. The course got stopped. Six weeks after I got to university, we were given a choice either to wait a year or to um, register for an external London University degree, which is purely theoretical, which is the reason I went to Sussex in the first place, not to do that. I got really fed up with it, got involved with student union. I um, became RAG chairman because I thought to hell with the course, I don't want to do this course. We raised a lot of money and then I went to a student union meeting and I'm listening to all the various societies talking about the bridge club and the football and the cricket, the rugby and the blah, 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 the debating society. I said, where's the social life? And they all looked at me and said, who the hell are you? <laughs> I said, I'm from pharmacy and they all kind of laughed. And um, they said, what do you suggest? And I said, I think we should open a club. And the president of the union kind of looked at me and I was right at the back of the hall. There was about a thousand people there. And um, he said, all right, clever dick, go and open a club. So I said, okay, I will. So I did for students. And we opened it. It was called Club 66. And I opened it in January 1966. By the summer, uh, end of the summer term, I was on the finance committee of the university because we were bringing so much money in. And then I'll never look back. What bands ah. did you have on? Well, I, I, I mean, the bands that I was working with were uh, The Move and The Action and um, The Moody Blues and Fleetwood Mac, people like that. They'd all started. It was those kind of bands. And man, Did you get the Who? Did you ever get the Who down? Because I know you're a master. You're such a I did man. much later, but, uh, but I'd yeah. worked with well, The Who well, separately. Later. Yeah. So even though music was in the kind of in the family, um, and I was brought up on, on listening to a lot of music and I used to go out to a lot of clubs and stuff. But this was a whole other thing and it just became an instant hit. And then we opened a second club and then I ended up booking shows, putting on shows across 12 colleges and universities on the South Coast from kind of Hastings to Western Supermare. And um, I then 
I want you to stand for president of the union and my professor who said you're here to study, not to be involved in student union activities and refused to uh, to sign off my um, my nomination. And as a SOP, he sent me to America on an exchange course. And I went to America on this exchange course. He sent me to this wonderful place called the University of Toledo in Ohio, which is in space, but they happen to have a very good pharmacology course there for some reason or other. I lasted one term. I had an aunt and uncle who lived in New York. I went to New York and uh, I saw an ad in the paper for a $99.99 day unlimited travel on Greyhound bus. And I went from one side of America to the other. And uh, I mean, I saw more, probably more of, of America then than I've ever done. I mean, it's a place. Which way did you go? Did you go south, north, or through the middle? I went kind of the north side of the middle on the way up, right. and the south side Past of the, the middle lakes. on the way back. Ended up in San Francisco as we're going over Golden Gate Bridge. Um, to, I was going to stay at the Y in downtown San Francisco. I saw this melee of people, and I could hear noise music. Is this 67? Is this 1967? Yeah. I mean, come on. Come and um, <laughs> I dumped my stuff at the Y and kind of asked around and found my way back to Golden Gate Park. And there was the Grateful Dead and Quicksilver Messenger Service playing. I wound my way backstage as one does. <laughs> I'm the biggest promoter in England. And they, it, it, it was just, you know, when you go to the first time you go to America, and you speak, and yeah. people say, oh, talk to me, talk to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. kind of thing. Well, especially then, especially, yeah, you know. So I met the Grateful Dead and befriended them for 30 years thereafter. And um, they spiked my drink with acid. <laughs> and three days later, I woke That's up. That's very generous of them. <laughs> three, well, they, they kept telling, I people were coming up to me saying, don't. Don't have an open glass. If they, if you want a Coke or a drink or water, get a can or a bottle. So I said, okay, I'll get a can. But they opened the lid. I didn't didn't think about that. Anyway, they spiked my drink. And three days later, I woke up in Peter Fonda's house. Don't ask me why. Oh, my word. And I have no wow. idea how I got there or yeah. what happened. You, on, I've on, never on back, heard that postscript to that story before. Probably so, got there on the back of a Harley uh, or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you locked in an embrace with Dennis Hopper. But, right? but before we, we continue <laughs> on that story, you your idea of bringing big bands to university, was was that common then? Or, or did you, because really I don't sort of see that happening until a bit later. No, it wasn't common. But wasn't it the only American bands... I'm sorry to interject. It's it, it, the early '60s thing. Seemed to be there was the package tours, and then there were all those blues artists who were coming over, who would then get English pickup bands. Which yes. People like Ian McLagan, yeah. And yeah. John. All those people got yeah. to play with those. That that was basically what was coming from America, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. I mean, my question is: Do you think you started that the kind of idea of of college being a place to for big bands to go and perform in? No, I don't. I can't take that credit. I'd love to, but I can't. I, I was one of them. I wasn't the only one. There were other people in other universities doing shows, but I I befriended an agent at Marquee Artists because the Marquee was the golden, you know, that was the golden yeah. place to play and to go, and they had an agency, and I befriended a guy 
called Trevor Witchlow, who was an agent, and we became really close friends. And he would tip me the wink on every act that moved. And I remember very, very early days being taken to a studio where Eric Clapton was doing some of his very early recordings, and he was still playing with John Mayle. And I did a show down in Brighton, and funny enough, about six or seven years ago, somebody sent me just out of the blue in an envelope the flyer for that show. And I put on the on the flyer John Mayle's Blues Breakers, and I put underneath featuring Eric Clapton. John Mayle went nuclear. Did the show. <laughs> He screamed the place down. I thought he was going to kill me. He didn't actually talk to me for about 20 years after that because he said, how dare I do that? It's his band. It's not for you to decide who's what and who's but, where. But, what, but why, did, why did you do that? I mean, was Eric's name known or was it, was it just because he was so phenomenal? Because I'd, I'd, I'd heard him play in the studio. I thought it was right. unbelievable. And... Um, you know, to me, he was a rising... There was no doubt about it. He was a rising star. And that was the end of it. About 20 years later, I'm at the Blues Fest in Australia, which is quite a famous festival. Oh, yeah. And there's John Mayall play. And um, I um, I went to watch the show, and I went back to say hello to him. And he looks and says, I'm still not talking to you. <laughs> 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 completely... Come over to you, especially to say that. (laughs) It was just very funny. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I was just lucky because in that period, 66, 67, 68, 69, every week there was another act of someone special. Oh, gotcha. And um I then decided I'd had enough of university and dropped out. And I and a guy who was the became the kind of press secretary or the PR guy for the student union and also doing all the PR for all the gigs because we were doing quite a lot of shows then, left as well. And we set up shop together. And his name was Michael Alfandari, and he was a bit of an eccentric. Um, and um, he and I started in business together. And we set up a circuit. So we we had a we had a club in Harlow called the Birdcage. We would do regular gigs, believe it or not, at the Hemel Hempstead Pavilion, where we had everybody from Jimi Hendrix, 
one of David Bowie's very early shows, one of the first shows Elton John did, from Hawkwind to you name it. We it was unbelievable the number of acts that we um, that played for us through that route, and then um, from Hemel Hempstead we started to do shows at the Roundhouse because uh, Michael was a a young conservative agitator <laughs> and persuaded um, Camden Council at the time to have a kind of arts a, a music arts festival and they said do it at the Roundhouse. So, so did started, you put Hendrix on there? Yeah, we started, to, yes, and at Hemel Hempstead. I've still got the, the poster, Jimi Hendrix at Hemel Hempstead Pavilion. Go figure that one out. He was unbelievable. It's so brilliant. So yeah, next week, run for your wife with Arthur Lowe. Yeah. <laughs> so we started doing shows at the Roundhouse, and they became really successful. And we were doing... you weren't were you involved in the International Times ones? Although no, yes, although... oh my god. So what happened? Very simply, what happened was, whilst I was in San Francisco, I was walking around the streets looking at these unbelievable posters advertising shows with artists I'd never heard of. But the posters were so strong that I thought these, I don't know who this act is, but these posters are telling me I've got to go and see the show. And I realised the strength of it. So I yeah, who, see... who, who is the designer of those posters? Do we remember? It's the guy who did all the Bill Graham ones, yeah. isn't it? All those yeah, fans. I've got where, some... where, 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 Actually, the design really had very little to do with the band. Didn't actually Andy tell you anything. Mouse you know. was one of them. He it was, was an Art Nouveau, Art Nouveau revival, yeah. wasn't yeah. it? And over here, obviously, we had Mike, we had Martin David, Sharp. David, Martin Sharp, David yes. English. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, Hapsash. So wait a minute. So I went to see the two protagonists. One was a guy called Bill Graham that you all know yeah, is yeah. no longer yeah. with us. Bill Graham rang the Fillmore's and there was another guy called Chet Helms, who nobody ever talks about. Chet Helms rang the Avalon Ballroom and started a very famous poster company called Family Dog. Oh, Family yeah. Dog yeah, yeah. were the designers and producers, some of the best posters around, along with Bill Graham and people like Stanley Mouse and people like that. So I did a deal with both of them. I said, I'm the biggest poster distributor in Europe. No idea. Came back with a contract to distribute family dog posters and film posters in England. I get back, I'm looking at the Evening Standard one one night, and there's a, an ad staring at me. We said, Partner wanted for poster company. So I went to see this guy called Peter Ledibar, who just set up shop at Kensington Market, which is quite a famous place. And we started big old posters together. And I went with to, to him. With, he was printing and selling posters. He was selling Martin Sharp posters, for example. Right, right. And um, he had just started Big O Posters, and I joined up with him for a year. In return, we got the rights for the gatefold in the middle, the posters that Martin Sharp did, which is always the gatefold in the middle of the magazine, right. to sell. And then when Oz got busted... They said to me, you've got to help us out. We've got to raise money to pay for, you know, John Mortimer's legal fees. And um, um, so I did the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, which was at Alexandra Palace. Oh, my God. That was for International Times. 
with, with the beat poet David Hopkins, and then I did a, a John Hopkins. Sorry, and then I did um, Christmas. Is that John? Is that, sorry, is that John Hopkins who run UFO? Yeah, right. And then I did. Uh, did it make any money? Yes. Everybody had a good time. Everybody yeah. had a wonderful time smoking it. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Had a helter skelter, didn't it? Everybody... Helter skelter in the middle. As you walked in, there were two plastic domes. As you came in the, the front entrance, give you a ticket, there were two plastic stone domes, and inside were two naked, very nice ladies, and it was filled up with bananas. And as they walked in, a hand came up, and everybody got a banana. <laughs> apparently pete townsend turned up at about 11 but and it was still the 60s the the world was still very formal and he'd obviously come from some dinner party and he was in black tie <laughs> I, I, that, I don't it's a fantastic that. image so yeah. floyd played right did that floyd yeah yeah, yeah. That and alan ginsburg there's footage there's some footage of alan ginsburg running around naked outside is that am i getting that confused or yes and also yoko ono i did this stunt with yoko ono where on the side of the stage we put a ladder and we asked a young socialite model to sit on top of the ladder and she was wearing a sheet and yoko and i got up on stage and we made an announcement would you please come up and cut a small piece of if everyone could just move back peace <laughs> peace and during the course of the evening people would like look around and they rush out on stage and they cut a bit of the sheet up till eventually there was nothing left and suddenly there were a lot of press at the Bally Pally gig and it was filmed it's a, it's a very you could see the documentary you can get it online actually um suddenly there was like mayhem going on because there were only three bits of cloth left and the press went <laughs> loopy <laughs> And anyway, the photos of blah, blah, went on for weeks and weeks. Who is this girl? What She turned out to be the daughter of some duchess or duke or something like that. And um, and so on. And it was just a funny stunt. But it Did was... the police come? Have you ever had, at that time, the police must have been raiding everything, weren't they? No, they didn't come. Well, if they did... Um, I wasn't aware. They didn't stop the show or anything. Right, but did you ever find yourself dealing with police because of drugs being smoked in venues, etc.? Yeah, pretty much. But they were... I never had a problem with the police. They were always pretty good, actually. I did have a bit of an issue with the Hells Angels once, but then I... Um, Tell us. ...who turned up at a gig and decided that they wanted to do the security. But then one of them got... Um, one of them got busted and uh, was taking a call. And I and I went up and gave him, um, and went to court and gave him a, um, you know, clean bill of health, saying how wonderful he was and he'd help old people and all the rest of it. He got off. I then became a hero to the Hells Angels because I'd wow. saved one of their key guys called Buttons. So there was all that going on. And oh then God. the Goldsmith started. chapter. It was just one of those. But it was always the Windsor chapter, wasn't it? Yeah. Which seemed really incongruous. That's the ones you always heard about, the Windsor chapter. Windsor, which is yeah. really weird. Windsor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then um, international, as I say, Oz got, got into trouble. They needed to raise money to pay for lawyers and the obscenity trial. So I did a show at Olympia with Jimi Hendrix and the Animals. 
that was pretty amazing. And we called Christmas on Earth, and that helped pay for the legal fees. So I was constantly being shoved away from doing posters to, you know, doing concerts. On the, the posters, on the on the just to finish off on the posters, did a chap called Dave Vaughan ever come into your yes, world? Absolutely. Dave Vaughan is my uh, my first, my eldest son's grandfather, or was. No kid. Yeah, it's Sadie Frost's dad, yeah. Ah, how funny. We did a lot of David Vaughan posters. They were all done on silver. That's right. I've got some down the stairs, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was a miserable uh, bugger. He always used to come in moaning. <laughs> ter <laughs> terrible, terrible. I, I, I've got a lot of those posters, actually, ones you were mentioning about San Francisco. I'll put some, I'll take some photographs. We'll put some up online. Yeah, they, they were really quite incredible. You know, so I've got one foot in the poster camp and then I keep being pushed away to go back to do concerts for people. And I, I can only tell you, I do this speech that I do around the world called Luck and Timing. And it was just luck and timing because, I mean, I remember getting called by uh, David Bowie's manager who was telling me he's got the greatest act in the world. And I didn't know who David Bowie was, of course. At the DeFries. It was DeFries at this time. Yeah. And DeFries was calling him out. You've got to book him. He's going to be the biggest act in the world and blah, blah, blah. I said, I've never heard of him. He said, well, you've got to come. So I went to see him. And sure enough, I remember putting him on at Hemel Hempstead thinking... <laughs> Um, this Always is going to cost been. a lot of money because no one's going to turn up. And they were queuing up round the block to buy tickets. I couldn't believe it. But David always came back to me. You know, he was, we, we became quite, you know, good friends over the years. But Bolan, you were saying? And then I started working with Mark Bolan. And then I was, and, and my two favourites were the Who and the Stones. And I, 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 I lucked in. Marky artists were the precursors of the Reading Festival. So Harold Pendleton, who owned Marquee, started the festivals. They were called the NJF Festivals, the National Jazz Federation. And they were the precursors of what is now Reading. Oh, was Richmond one of those? Yes. Wasn't that? Yeah. So um, my friend Trevor Wichlow, who's the, who was the, one of the chief agents at um, Marquee Artists, phoned me out and said, come down to the festival. He said, um, we need some help down there. Will you come down for the weekend? I said, yeah, absolutely, love to. And what happened was that Trevor and I ended up doing the car parks, which we had to man the car parks. <laughs> it was like one and six for a, for a motorbike and two and six for a car. So we used, and then whatever you want to charge for a coach. So we, and, and three quid for a gypsy caravan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we were smacking it up as we went. And we were stuffing these cars in. I, it it took some of them a whole day to get out. We were, we were literally just stuffing them into the car park, and we we were getting it was ridiculous. And on a Sunday night, the Who were closing the festival, and the stage manager had got ill or had an accident or something. And next thing I know, I'm on stage sorting out the Who and getting them together. That's kind of how I really started working with them. And there's footage of that gig, isn't there? I think of that one. Richard. Yeah, probably. Yeah. There's footage of everything somewhere. And uh, I got friendly with them. And then I started working with Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. And then I met Bill Cobbsley and Peter Raj, and we've remained lifelong friends. So, Did you do Leeds, the whole live at Leeds? No, I didn't. So. That was done by the university. Oh, okay. 
So as much as I'd like... It was done by a younger, done by a younger you. A younger you did that. Yes. <laughs> as much as I'd like to take credit for all these iconic gigs, I wasn't responsible for all of them. You know, we're talking about you being, you know, the nurse, as it were, the, the wet nappy chap. <laughs> <laughs> working with a band like The Who, working with someone like Keith Moon. Yeah. Get, get, I mean, what stories are there around Keith and getting him on stage? I mean, it couldn't have been easy. I mean, how long was it funny for? Do you know what I mean? I mean, <laughs> it got quite sad at the end. Actually, yeah. he, um, yeah, he, he, um, he got very depressed. I remember we were on the road. We were at Leicester. I think the night before, he dropped a television from his room into the pool because the pool was straight down. He thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and the next day. He phoned me up. He said, come over. And I went over to, to his room. And there he was standing. He was ironing his clothes. Uh, I mean, I kind of went, I did a double take because I thought I'd never seen that before with an artist ironing their own clothes. He loved it. He loved ironing. Don't ask me why. And I sat there and he was in a bit of a state. And I said, what's the matter? He said, oh, you know, I don't know how long I can keep doing this. You know, I've got to a point now where I'm acting every night and I have to go on and perform like an idiot. I don't really want to be an idiot and so on and so forth. It was quite quite a strange conversation. And then I think it was three, four months later, he was gone. Oh, wow. So he'd, he'd been, he, at first, it was just the energy. They, I mean, the Who, it was one of those strange things. The Who were allowed, there was, there was a premium circuit which was the rank cinema venues. And there was a whole circuit of them. They were all really big cinemas, had great seating and big stages. And they were all over the country. There were about, I think, nine or ten of them. And if you, if you were lucky enough, you were allowed to play the rank circuit. But when the rank circuit first started, it was they had kind of vaudeville shows. So... We had to do shows where we had to have a funny act, a, a, an MC. We had to have a crooner. We had to have a rock act. We had to have a speciality act, like we had a trick cyclist, or we'd had a puppeteer, <laughs> or some madness. And then we'd have the, then we'd have a break, and then we'd have the MC back again. We'd have the trick cyclist in the second half, and then his <laughs> ball would go on. I mean, it was nuts. Oh my God. Oh. Um, I started working with Deep Purple very early on, and they were one of the first bands that came to me and said, we want to do a whole show. And I said, I think that's a bloody good idea. And they said, we want to do a whole show. And, um, you know, we want to play at Hammersmith, of course, because that was the, the venue in London. And, um, and I toured them everywhere. I took them all over the world. Anyway, it took me six months to persuade Rank that one act could do a whole show because they couldn't get it. They were worried about ice cream sales and drink sales and this, and you've got to have an interval. They said the audience will all go home and they'll want their money back. I go, no, no, Where's no. Where's the no. trick cyclist? The trick It took me six months of persuasion, and I kept going and kept going, and eventually... They agreed to it, and all of the senior directors of Rank came down to watch the show, and they all had extra security ready standing by because they thought there would be riots. People wanted to leave, they want their money back. 
they were completely, <laughs> Let me out! They were completely blown away when they saw the show and how well it went. It was unbelievable. Was there no support out whatsoever? No. They did the two and a half hours straight off. And then, but do, they, do they still have to do six thirty and nine thirty? No, no, because, no, yeah, no. They, they, they all did matinees in those days as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. In the six thirty and nine thirty, you had to do six thirty and nine thirty. You didn't have a choice. Yeah. So I went to. I remember at the Rainbow. There was a show with um, Engelbert Humperdinck was the headliner. Pat Stevens closed the first half. Jimi Hendrix opened the show and just. Blew everybody away. Wow. Jimmy Henney, who was from Radio Luxembourg, was the MC DJ. And there was a, a bloke um, who on a Zampo the Strongman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you go figure a line up like that. And it was twice a night. Oh, my God. Jimmy Hendrix went on stage and would, had, did his whole thing with lighting the guitar. I mean, the audience, there were people kind of. Most of them were in the pub because who wanted to see Cat Stevens or Engelbert Humperdinck? And people were just flying in the venue because the word got out about this lunatic playing and they couldn't believe their eyes. And what was it like? What was it like for you to see Hendrix? Oh, it was fantastic. And I, I again, there was a very famous club called the Speakeasy. Oh, Speakeasy yeah. in the West End in uh, Little Portland Street. The Speakeasy was the place were every artist within south of Manchester, when they played their gig, was go to the speakeasy. And they all used to hang out there. And they always used to jam together. They used to finish their gig in Birmingham, Wolverhampton, you know, Watford, wherever it was, go to the speakeasy. It was always, it was open late. And all sorts of people... I'll say how late? It must have been very late. Three o'clock. Because they've all stopped to the Blue Boar on the way. Yeah, they'd all stopped to the Blue Boar. Three o'clock. 3.30, and then 3.30, you had to be out because then the police were around. But every act, and people like Hendrix, he'd be there all the time. And Manfred Mann was there all the time. And Mike hugged Manfred Mann's drummer, and we became mates. And I used to hang out there two, three nights a week, and I got to know everybody. So that's really helped me on my pathway. I should ask you about the garden party. We were talking about that yeah. before you came on. Oh, yes. Uh, and how that, how that developed, because really that was all part of the open air festival well, the scene, wasn't it? The garden parties came about from the roundhouse. One night, the director of entertainment from the old uh, GLC, the Greater London Council, which is now the GLA or the Mayor's Office, mm. came to the show... Um, came and found me. His name was Les Franklin. Very nice chap. Stoop, tie, everybody else looked like God knows what. And he said, can I have a word with you? So I said, yes. He said, um, I've, I've been watching what you do and see your these popular music concerts that you put on. He said, we've got a place called Crystal Palace. Um, have you ever heard of it? I said, well, I've heard of Crystal Palace. He said, but in the middle of Crystal Palace is a bowl. And we do um, four to six classical concerts there a year, and it's completely underused. Would you like to come down and have a look at it and see if you could put on one of your popular concerts? Mm -hmm. So I was with Michael. Michael and I went down there, and we couldn't believe what we were looking at. This is beautiful bowl with a lake in the middle yeah. and this conical stage. So we started the first of the garden parties. 
And the first show we did was the Pink Floyd, The Faces, and Mountain, which was Leslie West and Jack Bruce. Right. And uh, was that the octopus one? Was that the one? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah the, was octopus the octopus coming one. out, and they yeah, sunk the octopus yeah. in the middle of the lake. And um, <laughs> that was the first show we did, and then we did a. I think we did 13 or 14 of them over the years. I went to one. Did you do that? I went to it. was uh, Eric Clapton and Albert King. Yeah. I think it was 75 or 76. Something like I remember going there and just thinking, I can't believe this is London. Because it's literally it's like this Hollywood bar. Yeah, exactly. With a lake in front of it. It's, it was so magical. Did but that what? still happen down there? What's happened, what's happened to that place now? Well, they, they're, they're redoing... The octopus is bread they've taken yeah. over. Yeah. They took the Chronicle stage down. Last year, they did a concert, but they did it on the site of the old Crystal Palace, not on the lake. And the lake was magical. I remember we did Andy Williams there in a white suit, and we built a pontoon right out into the water. And he looked like he was walking on water in, when he performed. With um, Heath Moon, we did the Who there with Heath Moon. <laughs> Reminded a helicopter. We had a helicopter. And he virtually did a loop the loop over the roof. Oh my God, he wasn't flying it himself, was he? Yeah. The last concert that I did there was Bob Marley's last concert. That was amazing. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. Uh, Harvey, you based, you invented the one dayer, didn't you? Yes. The idea of yeah, basically because you didn't want the headache of festival. Camping. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I we, we got involved in the Wheelie Festival, which was a well known disaster. And there was another festival that we were working with with Stanley. Whoa, 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 yeah, whoa, whoa. what was the wheelie, wheelie festival? What's yeah. the wheelie festival? You're not going to get away with that. People used to shout out, wheelie. wheelie. I don't know this. Wheelie was a field. What, like on a bike? On a bike, you mean? No, no. It, <laughs> wheelie was a, a little village in the middle of nowhere, and there was a field, and these guys had the idea of doing a festival and asked us if we'd help put this festival together. <laughs> it was an absolute... There were no fences, no... I mean, it was just one of those disaster things. It was in the very, very early days. But it became quite infamous, and people used to go around the gigs shouting out, Wheelie! <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I came to the conclusions that festivals are actually a pain in the neck, and that if you did a really good one-day concert, you get as much out of it as doing a festival. You could enjoy it, it was easy and whatever, even if you did two one-day concerts. So I started doing one-day concerts in stadiums. I was the first guy really to do that. And I enjoyed Quick, I've always the, enjoyed what that. What was the first one of those? What was the first one of those? Because I remember seeing The Who in 17... It might have yeah. been The Who or The Stones at Wembley Stadium. So, I did so many Wembley Stadium shows. Um, well, because I remember see, seeing The Who in 79 yeah. at Wembley Stadium. Which you, and, and that was a really great bill. Yeah. It was like four or five bands on. That was a... Yeah, was always. A, was it, always. Did, was it, well, Char Charlton was like that, wasn't it? Yes. Charlton you did, played you, twice. You did Yes, yeah. didn't you? Doing the Relay show at uh, Loftus yeah. Road. Exactly. Did all the Yes tours, all the Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Emerson, Lake and Palmer um, was... We played at White City, actually, when it was a dog stadium. Oh yeah, yes, right. They had that, oh. they did that famous documentary, isn't there, with the three Arctic yeah, we did glories? Frank Emerson there, Lake. And we did, three Arctics. Yeah, we did Frank <laughs> I know Emerson Lake Palmer. Yeah, 
That's why they had three. They didn't need them. I know. I know. Can I just do a sidebar here? Because there was a chap, because you just, I just thought of him, something you said. A uh, guy called Jesus that used to be at every oh, yes. single concert yes. that I yes. ever went to when I was a kid. Do, do, do you remember him? Did he ever yes. get free tickets? What was it? We ended up, he became a kind of mascot. We just used yeah. to let him in. He would, he, he would turn up at every single big show we ever did. Yeah. It's like the Ravens at the Tower of London, isn't it? If Jesus stopped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Jesus wasn't dancing near the front, you yes. you, you thought, I'm at the wrong show. No, no, right? you're absolutely right. That's quite right. And what was his name? Let him in. I don't know. He was just... Didn't he, he made a record with someone in the 90s and he got involved with some trancey, no, ravey thing. Yeah, I think. probably with you. Just da danced on it, I don't know. He never youth. really spoke that much. Yeah. I mean, he kind of was just there. He would just arrive. But yeah. as you know, the funny thing is, did he, he was even, always did, at the front dancing? Was he even called Jesus? Was he just given that name? Did we just call him Jesus? Yeah. You know, did he know? He used to wear a white smock, didn't he? White smock, yeah. beard, hair all over the place. <laughs> and and was, he was always in a trance, always. Yeah, and if anyone... It was brilliant, but, but he sailed through punk and everything, yeah. didn't he? Although it was fantastic. If anyone knows more about Jesus or has come across him or yeah. been next let to him, know. let us know. <laughs> Guy, that was amazing. Uh, and, and we've got more to come, haven't we? We've got more to come because he, Carvey gave us so much. And even though, in time on a tradition, we have barely scratched the surface. So, so what we've got next week, we've got, Gary? We've got... Live Aid, and and so many tales from that. We've got getting Pink Floyd back together, and we've got getting Led Zeppelin back together. This this is I could tell you now there are some fantastic stories coming up. So uh, yeah, get yourself um, onto Rock on Tours. Because I was just going to say I just remembered something in the middle of that because uh, um, he so much of his stuff is about fundraising and everything like that. Earlier I was talking about Lewis FC. There's just a little nugget of information by the way, which is that in 1968. They needed new floodlights for the for the pitch. And so some guy who worked for the local council thought he'd organise a gig to raise some money for it. And so Pink Floyd played at Lewis Town Hall and it was one of the only gigs where it was the five of them. And in fact, it was the last gig before the famous Southampton one where they didn't bother picking up Sid. And that's what paid for Lewis FC's that's floodlights. That's incredible. That's incredible. And now raconteurs are behind Lewis FC. Exactly. Uh, makes sense. No, my what I was going to say was, we of course forgot Jean Michel Char. Oh my God, Equinox. we did. How many albums? I don't know. Equinox. Turn the machines back on. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yes. Anyway, we're back next week, um, and it won't be the Equinox, but it will be more Harvey Goldsmith and some incredible tales. Thank you to yeah. Ben Jones. Exactly. But in fact, we're going to wait till the autumn Equinox, and then we're going to have an Equinox season. <laughs> Thank you to our producer, Ben Jones, and, uh, and uh, thank you to Harvey Goldsmith. Um, good night from me. And good night from them. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.